like if they were giving out awards for best colonialist this man would win the damn oscar like a bastard he was a right fucking bastard <laughs> guys and welcome to the Utajua Hujui podcast. It is my first ever podcast. Woody whoop and I'm so excited to be in your ear holes today. <laughs> um, this is your girl Aileen and just real quick facts about me. One, I do swear a lot so this is a swear warning, be warned. Two, I am an alcohol enthusiast so this will also be a drinking podcast. Feel free to grab a glass of wine, grab a cocktail of your choice, a beer, whatever, and listen to me as you garden, listen to me as you run, listen to me as you do whatever you want. It's a beat of a podcast, right? And thing number three, I am a big old nerd and it's that nerdiness that led me to actually start this podcast because the whole idea of Utajua Hujui is that you will learn that you do not know and that is a beautiful freeing thing because it then frees you up to learn everything right so i'm not going to try to teach y'all everything but hopefully it can inspire you to be a little bit more curious in your life hopefully it can inspire you to take a little bit to be a little bit more proactive in your education because education doesn't finish when you get your diploma it is an ongoing thing um yeah so as, a, as the alcohol enthusiast that I am, the drink of the day is Caprice, Caprice, I don't, I, I don't know how y'all say it, but it's Caprice Sweet Red. It is one liter for 700 shillings, and although this voice does sound bougie, we also broke out here, and this is value for money, so cheers! Um, let me just take a real quick sip before continuing. Fun fact about uh, this early recording... I'm actually sitting in my closet like I had to remove everything that was in here except for the clothes that are hanging and I folded myself into my closet <laughs> like a damn yogi and I am very proud of myself right now. So let's get into this inaugural episode. Um, what are we going to be talking about Aileen? I'm so glad you asked Aileen. We will be talking about King Leopold II of Belgium and his, to put it very lightly, shenanigans in the Congo. And the reason why I find this particularly interesting, and the reason why I think, you know, Utajua Hujui, is because one, one man, not one government, not one, not one country, one man controlled the Congo. He was accountable to absolutely no one. Let's put this into perspective, right? King Leopold II was the king of Belgium. He was also the one-man government of the Congo. And Congo is not only eight times the size of Belgium, it is also a twelfth of the African continent, right? And I just find it absolutely fucking wild that as the European powers were, you know, deciding who gets what in Africa, without any Africans involved, by the way, they, they, they were all collectively like, yeah, it's fine this one man could rule this much land, what could possibly go wrong? And today, we're also going to find out what went wrong. And it just, it just went so wrong. Good God. Like, if they were giving out awards for best colonialist, this man would win the damn Oscar. Like, a bastard. He was a right fucking bastard. But anyway, um... Also, another reason why I want to talk about King Leopold II and the Congo Free State, as he called it, um, is because in his plans and in his actions, you see the very worst vestiges of colonialism. You see the early rhetoric that was used to justify colonialism and you see what happens when colonialism is taken to its extreme. Um, so let's get started, shall we? But first, before talking about how he fucked shit up, um, I wanted to talk about what the Congo was and who the Congolese were before his machinations. Because a lot of the times, whenever we talk about colonialism, we rarely focus on the pre-colonial societies. We rarely focus on the lives that our people had before they were interrupted, before they were exploited for commercial profit. And so a lot of that history is 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 being actively erased and we have to fight 
to keep it relevant if you have to fight to keep it prominent and that's what i'm going to that, that's why i want to start by talking about the civilizations of the congo but also for the sake of this episode it's really important to understand that leopold claimed to go into the congo because he wanted to civilize the people the congolese were civilized don't get it twisted they were civilized and in demonstrating that civility not only to you but also to but also reinforcing it in my own head because i am still working on decolonizing my mind i will demonstrate that his claims were a bull a shit like the biggest bull crap in the damn world but as africans like we i have a feeling that we already know that right but first um what is a civilization when I think of civilization, I think of effective governance, I think of an ability to collect taxes, I think of a unified people, I think of common cultures, common values, commonly held beliefs. And the Congo had all these in the multitude of chiefdoms and kingdoms that were a plenty in the Congo. And today I want to focus on three kingdoms just to demonstrate that to you. The Luba, the Lunda and the Congo kingdoms. So the Luba kingdom started at around 1500 and began as a small group of chiefdoms. They resided near large water bodies, including Lake Tanganyika and the Kasai River. And for me, that choice to reside near a massive water source that, you know, will help you feed the population demonstrates incredible foresight and is literally how most Western civilizations started. Like if you look at ancient Egypt and the Nile, if you look at the Mesopotamians and the and the and the and the water sources and where they settled in the Middle East, if you look at India and the civilizations that settled there in the beginning of history, and the same thing of China, all these civilizations, all these recognized civilizations, did the smart thing and settled near large water bodies because they understood that, hey, we go need to feed some folks because, you know, food is important to life. But somehow, somehow, like, and I don't, I just, I just, I just don't know why, you know, somehow, whenever an African civilization that is not ancient Egypt um, settles near a water body, it's kind of, it's kind of dis, dis, it's kind of ignored, it's kind of discounted, and it's, it's almost shaped as, oh, you know, they were really lucky to have settled near a water body as opposed to it being a deliberate choice. Like, agency is taken away from from our ancestors. But, uh, again, uh, let me go back to the facts that I'm trying to spit at you. Um, so, in the Luba kingdom, the king had central control and he, is, and he exercised this control primarily through assigning titles. Now, these titles were not assigned for life, but for a time. And he gave out titles to matters of essential importance to keep all the chiefdoms together in the kingdom. Now, this is a tactic that was practiced by by monarchies all over the damn world. But suddenly, you know, Africans doing it. Oh, that's not civilization. But anyway, um, and they also did trade and had a great understanding of metalworks, metallurgy and had, you know, pretty decent weapons. They also had their own form of currency and were able to trade with other kingdoms, not only within the Congo, but in, but also the Portuguese, to gain guns to better protect their kingdom. That's just one. And in the Luba kingdom, we definitely see that they have, there is effective governance. They are able to collect taxes, and they are a unified people. So let's move on to kingdom number two, the Lunda kingdom. So in the Lunda kingdom, power was, not, power was held by a council, not by an individual. This, and this made it more democratic than some states in Europe. Give me one sec. Drink break. Okay. So, and um, on the subject of trade and recognition, um, the Luda kingdom also did trade with Portugal, and they were able to secure guns and manufactured goods in return for copper, gold, ivory, and unfortunately, slaves. At some point, I do want to do an episode about the uh, the role Africans played in the slave trade, um, not as a way to ex- exculpate, you know, the horrors of the slave trade and remove blame from the actual, from, 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 from the actual people that genuinely made it their life's mission to make black people's lives living fucking hell, but to also, but, but, but to also like give a better understanding of what history is right? Um, but anyway, let me get back to the Lundas. So once on a visit to Lunda Kingdom by a Portuguese captain named Antonio Gamito, 
um, uh, this was around 1831, 1832, he said, uh, he, made, he noted down his initial perspective on the Luda kingdom. Um, he remarked that we certainly never expected to find such ceremonial pomp and ostentation in the pontinate of a region so remote from the seacoast and in a nation which appears so barbarous and savage. So in Captain Gamito's statement, he's kind of reconciling three things in my mind, right? So first, he didn't expect to find such such a civilization um, away from the coast. So basically, at, at that time, a lot of Portuguese and European traders only believed that um, civilizations and civilized people kind of only resided by the coast because that's, you know, because that's only who they traded with. And because of um, the wildlife and the diseases, a lot of those traders could not venture inwards. But those that were were genuinely shocked to find that, oh, dear, oh, dear, these guys, these guys, these guys have culture. These guys are civilized. These guys are just like me, you know. Um, so that's the first thing that I see. The second thing that I see is a recognition of the ceremony and the pomp and the ostentation. And those things don't just happen um, without planning and coordination and and unity, kind of the hallmarks of civilization. And three, I think this recognition that the nation is not as barbarous and as savage as it appears. Um, and I just find it really interesting that even though there were these written accounts, as like few and far between of these internal kingdoms like internal to africa internal kingdoms that were civilized a lot of uh later in history around the 19th century a lot of people felt really comfortable proclaiming the savagery of africa as a justification for domination i just find it really interesting lastly i do want to make a point about uh, how in the lunda kingdom um there they practice matrilineal, matrilineal heredity and this basically means that a lot that this basically means that one's connection to power came from the mother side not the father side and that gave women a lot of power and a lot of influence in the kingdom so goodbye to anyone that is out here still claiming that oh in the past colonialism was good because it, it saved women from being oppressed and na, 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 na. and i was like you just sub like like boo like we had like back our pre-colonial societies were more progressive than some of the societies that exist today but you know let's 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 move on to my final example <laughs> so my final example is the congo kingdom and it began at around 1487 um and by a king called mani congo um, and he also distributed power throughout his provinces by installing governors that would exercise power on his behalf. Um, this demonstrates that in order to have a balanced government that could cover such a large distance, the Congo kingdom distributed power and this made them a more productive kingdom. Um, they also had a form of currency as in, in, in cowrie shells and used them to collect taxes. And the thing that I find really interesting about the Congo Kingdom is that, there, is, that they, is that they were explicitly recognized by Europe. So um, one of Mani Congo's descendants called King Afonso led an African delegation to Rome in 1513. During his trip, he was declared a bishop like a damn bishop of the catholic church sorry i should maybe not have used the word damn in church in the in the same sentence <laughs> but anyway at that time uh 15 uh, at that time in the 1500s rome was at the heart of europe and so de and so declaring an african king bishop meant respect and acceptance of king alfonso's kingdom of the congo so again, I just find it really wide. I just find it really weird and wild about how there are all these instances of kingdoms being recognized and 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 kingdoms being acknowledged, but those recognitions and acknowledgments are kind of tossed to the side when Africa becomes when Africa becomes resource rich, and suddenly there they, there's something that they want from us. But um, all this is to say that civilization did exist in africa civilization has always existed in africa unfortunately it was just not a way that was recognized by by the colonizers and that is that just that just breaks my heart um but 
we do need to talk about but this is not the story of pre-colonial societies and how they rose this is the story of how those of how those uh colonies or of how those societies were systematically destroyed and subjugated for the benefit of a colonizer and one of the first steps towards this is in the slave trade um i'm not going to I'm not going to explain what the slave trade is. I think a lot of us have a passing knowledge of what it is, but it essentially changed everything because Africa became resource rich. Her people were suddenly resources whose bodies were immensely valuable and not from a I recognize the humanity within you kind of way, but in an economic exploitation kind of way. Um and it and as a result of the ravages of slavery cuz communities and societies were decimated absolutely decimated as a result of 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 people being stolen from africa and this reduction of population and, and this real brain drain and this fractures in societies and and in communities laid the groundwork for 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 colonialism uh, because the slave trade not only, as I said, depopulated much of Africa, but it also dismantled important chiefdoms and kingdoms that maintained stability and balance throughout the continent. Um, and in King Leopold II's Congo, many of these kingdoms would be changed forever. For example, the Luba were dissolved um, in King Leopold's Congo, and there are no records of them as unified kingdom afterwards. Um they were they were then used as forced manual labor and provided the fodder for the imperial fire the blue under leopold's damn ass um as as for the lunda the belgians and leopold himself ruled through them and so the lunda were able to preserve their historical traditions and hierarchy but their land and possessions were confiscated and so they they lost another important element of their society um, the Congo Kingdom had already been decimated by the slave trade, and so they did not survive the incursion of Leopold and his men. So now I want us to focus on the real bastard of the episode, the real star, star <laughs> of African colonialism, King Leopold II, instead Airhorn, Airhorn, Airhorn. Um, so I'm not going to provide much background on him because like i don't think it's important to the story that i'm trying to tell but essentially he became the king of belgium at the age of 30 and throughout most of his reign because he was a constitutional monarch and so had very little power and he was frustrated by this additionally he was frustrated by belgium's lack of power and prestige and so in his youth he went shopping around for a colonial territory um so first he tried looking in the philippines that area because uh a lot of the early colonies were like india philippines indonesia vietnam and so on um and he failed he like he he damn failed but he then looked to a, he then started looking around looked around looked around and thought i need a place that is just mine that i can fuck with that i can do whatever i want with and no one can say a damn thing um and so he started looking at africa in a way that makes me feel very uncomfortable like to all my women listening to the podcast haven't you ever been in like a club and you're busy enjoying yourself busy vibing you're doing your thing you're looking cute you know you're stunning and all of a sudden you see this person just staring at you like staring you down and you look and you, like every time you look in their direction there they are just staring at you and it makes you really uncomfortable now Imagine if Congo, imagine if Africa is you and the person staring at you is Leopold. Like that is how intense and just deeply unsettling Leopold's lust because it was a real lust for power and control was. Um, and his master plan was to create and create a country that he, like I said, that he would have complete and utter control over. Um, and around the same time, which is around the 1870s, there was an explorer named Henry Morton Stanley. He was paid by a lot of people to chart uh, a course through Africa and just basically try to figure out how Africa works. And he started, he started presenting a lot of prominent results. And 
one of these results was like the mapping of the Congo state. Um, and Leopold was like, hold up, hold up. What'd you say? What'd you say? Did you say, did you say something about Congo? Did you say something about Congo? And uh, he immediately realized that Congo is huge. Congo is right in the middle. And so he could control trade from West to Central Africa. And he just he, he just had to have Congo. Um, and so his and so he started he started laying the groundwork for his master plan. Um, in 1876, he commissioned the Brussels Geographic Conference, and, and at that conference, he uh, began the International African Association. Did this association have Africans? No, they did not have Africans. It was an International African Association without any damn Africans. Anyway, um, and at the conference, a flag was adopted, and the flag was a gold star on a blue background apparently symbolizing the bringing of light to the African darkness. Anyway, I'm going to try not to gag for the remainder of this episode because the rhetoric is going to become more frustrating and more infuriating as we go on. So I'm just going to, I'm just actually just going to take a drink because at this point, oh, we going to need it. So with the flag, you definitely saw the genesis of the framing of going into Africa as something philanthropic, as something that we, the colonizers, thought themselves as civilized. So as something as we, as civilized individuals, need to go and share the civility and share this modernity to a continent, right? We need to go do it because it's our moral duty to make sure that everyone gets pulled into the light of civilization. Again, there were civilizations in Africa. But anyway, um... And in the opening remarks of this conference, Leopold said, and I quote, The subject that calls us together today is one that demands a first place in the attention of friends of humanity. To open up the civilization, the only part of our globe where she had not yet penetrated, to pierce the darkness that envelops entire populations is, I may venture to say, a crusade worthy of the century of progress. And I am glad to observe how favorable public feeling is towards its accomplishment. The current is with us. He was basically saying that, yeah, we need to go into Africa and share, and share the magic of civilization that only we have been able to to harness because we're awesome and we're great. Um, yeah, but uh, the irony of this entire conference is that the people that were there, for one for one reason or another, genuinely cared about making things better. Obviously, they didn't understand what this meant. They didn't understand Africa well enough to go and make to actually go and make a difference and actually go achieve the aims that they wanted. But they all wanted to to quote unquote help. And this marked a shift from the rhetoric of the past, because in the past, colonialism was strictly about resource extraction, resource extraction. You basically say, fuck the natives. I want your shit. Give me your shit. Um, but now with King Leopold's speech and the changing rhetoric, it be, it's still like it's still about fucking over the natives, but through ingratiating them into a soul sucking capitalist system that detached us from our culture, our ancestors. Um, but anyway, back to the organization. Um, so. Leopold suggested that Belgium was the only place that these people could meet because Belgium, um, I think, in 1839 was declared a neutral state. And he suggested himself to run the organization, of course. He then said, no, 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 don't worry. I'm only going to, like, run it for a year, make sure it gets off the ground. And I swear, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm just, it's just one year. Just, it, it, it's, it's just one year. Trust me. Yeah. And, and, and the assurances he gave were that, was that, and I quote, Belgium is small. She is happy and satisfied with her lot, and I have no other ambition than to serve her well. Uh, but guess what happens? Obviously, he gets elected for the first year, but then, then guess, guess what happens? He gets elected for a second year as the head of the International African Association. Um, he then goes on to replace the association with the Committee for Studies of the Upper Congo, and then replaces this organization again with the International Association of the Congo in 1879. Um, first things first, I'm the realist, but seriously, first things first, um, you can see how, for him, these organizations were merely a means to an end because he kept changing them around. He really didn't care what they were called as long as they got him into the Congo, right? And in the very beginning, it was more about Africa, but 
even with the name changes, you could, you could see him increasingly inching towards the Congo. But in particular, the International Association of the Congo in 1879 was created to show the world that he wanted to drive Arab slave traders out of the Congo and establish free trade. Now you have this melding of that economic economic extraction, economic exploitation with a philanthropic message and philanthropic intent. Um, but uh, as a result, and, and, and essentially... Um, he himself knew what he was doing because, according to Adam Hochschild in his excellent book, King Leopold's Ghost, he instructed his staff that care must be taken, that the Association of the Congo and the African Association are two different things. The public doesn't grasp that. But what? Anyway, so in 1879, under the auspices of the International Association of the Congo, um, Henry Morton Stanley, remember him, um, he was sent back to the Congo. And he was sent to build stations along the Congo River to act as waypoints for trade. Um, but uh, he, but that was just his explicit, uh, his publicized mission. Of course, our boy HMS, Henry Morton Stanley, had a secret mission. Um, and he was also sent to map out the Congo and take as much land as possible. Now, Stanley was armed with an expedition force and he was ordered to bribe and intimidate the chiefs, about 400 in total, to have them to give their land over. Meanwhile, back in Brussels, Leopold hired an Oxford scholar, again, according to Adam Hochschild from King Leopold's Ghost. He got the Oxford scholar to provide a learned legal opinion backing the right of private companies to act as if they were sovereign countries when making treaties with native chiefs. Stanley was under instructions to lead his well-armed forces up and down the river to do just that. Um, it's in, in, in essence, and Leopold told this Oxford legal scholar that the treaties must be as brief as possible and in a couple of articles must grant us everything. Essentially, Leopold was being a damn snake, a snake, a snake. He's a snake. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking about that meme. Anyway, he was very, very preoccupied with maintaining the squeaky clean image of his efforts um, because Hotschild, and I quote, says that Leopold, that Leopold's in, Leopold intended that Henry Morton Stanley's work was to be seen as nothing more than philanthropy. The contract Stanley made his European staff uh, sign forbade them from divulging anything about the real purpose of this work remember the real purpose was to get the african chiefs and kingdoms to sign contracts that would cede over their land but um do you want to take a quick guess about what these uh what language these contracts were in no no honestly just just guess it's it was it was in damn french like like okay um if you were to sign something that you don't understand, in a language you don't understand, have you really consented or were you fooled? No, no, it's, it's, it, this is a legitimate question, right? Because Leopold was doing his damn hardest to make sure that his work appeared to be legitimate. He was doing the damn most to make sure that his work looked like it was in the up and up but he is out there in africa with his representatives getting chiefs to sign contracts they do not understand so how how is that fair how is that fair and remember these kingdoms and these chiefdoms were not ignorant to the idea of diplomacy but what they were i mean remember king alfonso's in 1513 went to rome the Lunda and the Luba both traded with the Portuguese, so there was this understanding of diplomacy, but they were used to trade diplomacy or pacts of non-aggression. And so I'm assuming that what they thought they were signing were these pacts of non-aggression. They thought, oh, you like we're trying to be friends. Okay, let me sign this, and this will be the beginning of a long and lasting friendship. I swear to God, if I had a time machine, I would go back into time and just and just advise. A lot of people just to be like very wary of white people be just like just be very very wary of the colonizers just because i this this breaks my damn heart but here is here are some of the terms of the contract right in return for one one piece of cloth per month one 
I will reserve my anger for the age of the quote. For, I'm sorry. I will reserve my anger for the end of the quote. <clears throat> In return for one piece of cloth per month to each of the undersigned chiefs, besides the present cloth in hand, they, the, they promised to freely of their own accord for themselves and their heirs and successors forever to give up to the um, International Association of the Congo the sovereignty and all sovereign and governing rights to all their territories and to assist by labor or otherwise any works improvements or expeditions which the said association shall cause at any time to be carried out in any part of these territories all roads waterways running through the country the right of collecting taxes on the same and all game fishing mining and forest rights are to be the absolute property of the said association of the congo Oh, I'm gonna need a moment. I'm just gonna take a. I'm just gonna take a sip of wine. Okay, I'm back. Oh. Okay, so let me just unpack this real quick. For one piece of cloth per month per chief. These chiefs. These chiefs gave up all mining, forest, fishing rights. They gave up the right to collect taxes. They gave up their land in perpetuity forever they gave up the sovereignty forever i just and i know there are going to be people who are thinking but yeah but they signed these contracts like how else were they supposed to know that this was that this was you know how like they signed these contracts they 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 consented i'm like (sighs) and what makes it worse is that in these treaties, these treaties that were written in French, by the way, so like in these treaties, if money could not be collected for taxes, taxes could be paid off in labor. So they could force you to work for as long as they needed you to work in order to pay off taxes. But this, these treaties essentially like essentially erased civilization because these chiefs and these kingdoms gave up their sovereignty civil rights and liberties they gave up land and labor and they also gave up important access to roads pathways and waterways all these things are important to not only personal survival not only community survival but survival of the civilization without any of these items no civilization could exist and so I just find it really funny that in the very beginning, you kind of have Leopold saying with such pride and such just, you kind of have Leopold saying that um, he wants to open up to civilization the only part of the globe where she had not yet penetrated, but in so doing, completely destroying the civilization that existed there before. And also, he was a real, 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 real ass motherfucking snake. For using a legal system, not our own, to claim ownership. Mm, I just, oh, I just can't. I just, Leopold, like, and there's a thing we haven't even gotten to the awful part. I am on page five of seven, and it is about to get so much darker than this. <sighs> so just like, take a deep breath, and then breathe it out again, and then. I want you to visualize something real positive and then just hold on to that damn positive image because it is about to get so much damn worse. So with all these treaties in hand, in about 1884, 1885, the Berlin Conference took place. And the context of the Berlin Conference is that a lot of European countries were getting real itchy, real scratchy for land in Africa and were busy like eyeing out their comp- their competition to make sure that they would get the biggest, that they would get the most lucrative, that they would just win the scramble for Africa. Um, and these treaties, these signatures by African chiefs allowed Leopold to take control of the Congo because all the other major powers, Britain, France, Germany, um, Italy, so like what have you, um, saw these treaties and were like, yep, it's consent, it's fine. And 
they also took Leopold's assurances that he wanted free trade. And they were like, this man wants free trade. He got the positions. He got the permission of the natives. This is all on the up and up. I'm not going to do much digging into this. We are good. Leopold, you go and take the Congo for yourself. Ooh, and finally, finally, after almost a decade of plotting and scheming, Leopold had his country. Leopold had his prize jewel. Leopold had the Congo. Never mind that the Africans did not truly consent. Never mind that this decision was kept from them. He finally had what he wanted and it was his. Mm. And so the name of the International Association for the Congo changed and now the Congo became the Congo Free State. It was declared an independent nation with King Leopold II as its as its ruler. But remember that he remember at the time King Leopold was at the time King Leopold was also the king of Belgium. So he not Belgium he as an individual owned the Congo. And he had no oversight from parliament or government. Whatever he wanted to do, it was his. And according to Hochschild, Leopold several times referred to himself more accurately for his main interest in the territory was extracting every possible penny of wealth as the Congo's proprietor. His power as king sovereign of the colony was shared in no way with the Belgian government, whose cabinet ministers were as surprised as anyone when they opened their newspapers to find that the Congo had promulgated a new law or signed a new international treaty. So King Leopold II was king of the Congo between 1885 to 1908. For 23 years, this man controlled a country eight size eight times the size of Belgium and made a bucket load of money and much of this wealth was taken back to Belgium to build it up to build train stations and beautiful galleries and furnish his palaces and just it's a, like it is a story that we're all familiar with right that the excesses and the wealth of the western world were built off the backs of africa and asia it is something that we are so familiar with that we that we just accept it to be a part of nature to to, to the extent where we don't even demand that those western powers reckon with the consequences of their of their of their greed and it really annoys me um so before I begin talking about what what uh, how his rule really played out, because it gets it gets so dark. Oh God, it gets so dark. And this is really ironic because he kept talking about how Leopold, that is, kept talking about how he wanted the light of civilization to penetrate through the darkness of Africa. What he did in the Congo was not civilized. Was in no way, shape, or damn form civilized. But anyway, let us let us continue. So, um, like I said, Leopold Leopold's intention with the Congo was to extract every penny of wealth from the territory. And he first saw ivory as a main jewel of the Congo because it was in demand and cheap to acquire. However, after the market became saturated with ivory, he switched to rubber. And Congo had one of the largest supplies of rubber. And this rubber was extracted with absolutely no fucks given to the, to, given to the human cost. Um, all previously uninhabited land, I'm saying that in quote, uninhabited land was nationalized and much of it was distribu distributed to private companies. Um, he also established a standing army called the Force Publique. And it was a military force in the Congo Free State that consisted of Belgian officers, meaning that no Congolese would have any decision-making power on how their people were treated. That no Congolese people were invited towards the 
towards maintaining the security of their territory. Um, and the forced public set up bases and forced labor camps to have the Congolese go and collect wild rubber. This normally took all day and thousands, millions of people lost their lives climbing up trees to cut, ru- to cut the rubber veins for the sap. Oh, I don't like where this is going and I wrote it. <laughs> if the quotas were not met, then villages... Oh, God. Okay. If the quotas were not met, then villages had to cut off a number of right hands to replace the expected amount of rubber. And in what way, in what universe, on what plane is human hand for rubber an equal exchange? In what way there are pictures of literally handless congolese people and as i was doing my research in fact i may post this on one of my socials that there was a particularly brutal one where a father was sitting on a porch staring at the hand and foot of his five-year-old daughter that had been severed as punishment and leopold has the absolute fucking nerve to say that he's bringing civilization to the congo nope but it gets worse it gets it gets so much worse anyway so soldiers had to bring the hands of the people they cut to prove they'd adequately dealt with the failures of work um and so these baskets of severed hands became the symbol of the congo free state the collection of hands became an end in and of itself so these soldiers of the force publique went around collecting hands the same way we all went around collecting pokemon in 2016 with wanton abandon your goal was the pokemon their goal was the hands not the rubber the hands right because the hands became a sort of currency according to Hosschild. they came to be used to make up for the shortfalls in rubber quotas and they were paid and and the forced public soldiers were paid their bonuses on the basis of how many hands they collected and what do you think king leopold said like do you think he was remorseful or do you think that he was like, nah, fuck it? Do you think it was do you think it was like a like a Sith Lord being like, nah, fuck it, do what you gotta do? So good guy Leopold, our favorite colonialist, he in response to the hand cutting, he is quoted to have said, Cutting off the hands is idiotic. I'd cut off the rest of them, but not the hands. That's the one thing I need in the Congo. He's not He's not saying y'all shouldn't be cutting hands. He's not saying this is bad, like you guys shouldn't be doing this. He's saying, what the fuck? Don't cut off their hands. I need them to make money. He just... Like, Leopold is one of those people, one of those people who, when you describe his life story and describe what he did to the Congo, it sounds like a cartoon villain because no one, no one can be this evil. Either by proxy or directly, no one can be this evil. No one can be this callous. And yet he was. For 23 years, he was this callous. And his callousness extended to children because even children were not spared the rigors of his regime. In a, in, in a document he wrote on April 27th in, on, in 1890, he said that we must set up three children's colonies. You heard me right three children's colonies one in the upper congo near the equator specifically military with clergy for religious instruction and for vocational education one at leopoldville because yeah of course the man is also a little bit of a narcissist and so decided to name a city in the congo after himself um so anyway one children's colony in the leopold under clergy with a soldier for military training one at the Boma, like that at Leo, and the aim of these colonies is to above all furnish us with soldiers. We must have built we must have to build three barracks at Boma, Leo, and the Equator, each capable of housing fifteen hundred children and administrative personnel. And you know these children were not taken there by their own will. These children were dragged to these colonies. They were kidnapped and placed in these spaces completely removed from their culture and built back up as soldiers to oppress their own like that breaks my heart 
that is just so i'm not defeated but at the same time at the same time like this is disgusting that is the kindest word i can use is disgusting so following up on leopold's orders the governor general six weeks later directed his district that the children's colonies were usually ruled by chicote and the chain and for those of you who are unfamiliar with what a chicote is oh lord a chicote is a long knotted whip with a wooden handle it's a damn whip that was being used on children yay again not defeated but just the horrors of history are plenty especially in the colonial age of africa because i know for a fact that one of the episodes I want to do is on the Mau Mau and the period of emergency and what the British got up to at that time. And then eventually I, w- I will talk about the French because the French are just a whole other bag. But this, and I think the reason why Congo felt, uh, sorry, I think the reason why Leopold II felt really comfortable saying all these things and just being a giant, you know, a giant dick is because he did not recognize the humanity of the people he went there to supposedly help. He merely saw them as savage and barbarous. And in so doing, he, he prescribed to, uh, to, 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 to one of the thoughts of uh, John Stewart and Harriet Taylor Mill. Because they argued that despotism is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians cutting off people's hands, taking away their children, whipping them to death, starving them, preventing them from going home until they have met their quota is all perfectly justified because you are dealing with savage people. And Leopold saw them as savage people. So, how did it go? All right, um, well, due to the large-scale murder, famine, disease, and exhaustion from work, the population of the Congo Free State went from 20 million to 10 million. And it's worth noting that because Leopold did not do a census when he first arrived, and the first census in the Congo took place in 1924, that a lot of these numbers are, are just are like estimates. But there is wide consensus that at least one out of every two people died in the Congo. One out of two. Which is which is disgusting. And for the longest time, people in Belgium did not recognize what Leopold had done. They had basically brushed it under the rug and thought that they could continue to exploit the Congo without acknowledging how it came to be theirs. It wasn't until 2020 when a Belgian monarch um, and the Belgian government recognized the shit they put the Congo through. Because one of King Leopold II's descendants, King Philippe, wrote in a letter, I would like to express my deepest regrets for the injuries of the past, the pain of which is now revived by the discrimination still too present in our societies. Um, And he wrote this again in, in the summer of 2020 as the Black Lives Matter protests were happening and a lot of EU countries were publicly reckoning with their colonial legacy. And not in a the sun will never set or the British Empire kind of way, not in an attempt to glorify that legacy, but in a real way, in a real way to account for the in a to in a real way to account for what they had done in their colonies. Um, in a way that forced every citizen to acknowledge that they had benefited from the horrific crimes committed for their sake and for the progress of their countries. But even as the statement by King Philippe was issued, his brother had the absolute fucking nerve to respond with, Leopold himself never went to the Congo. So I do not see how he could have made people suffer. As if you need to be there yourself to make people suffer. Do you really think Pablo was there for every single execution? 
Do you really think Bush was there for every single enhanced interrogation? Do you think Hitler was there at every single gas chamber? My guy, no. How can you be so damn obtuse? <sighs> anyway, that's the end of my show. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed this first episode and I'm really looking forward to feedback um, on how I can make it better and any topics you would like me to cover. I might do a part two talking about Belgium's rule over the Congo and how they worked with the CIA to destabilize it after the election of Patrice Lumumba. But again, another story for another day. I have been talking for almost an hour and my voice is um is getting real dry and real cr- and real cracked. But, you know, this is a podcast game, I suppose. Um thank you so much for listening to this and I really do hope I could have ended it on a happier on a happier note. Um but my intention in talking about the Congo and in talking about how Leopold came to seize it for as his personal property is to make it clear the mechanisms through which colonialism embedded itself into the minds of the colonizers because a lot of us feel really uncomfortable taking exploiting somebody else for our own good the first time you do it it makes you feel really uncomfortable which is why you often have this corresponding and accompanying narrative of but we're also helping them we're also giving them the x y and z we're also doing this this, and this because it helps soothe your ego and it helps wash over the the uh, the the potential immorality of your actions um and so i hoped that in telling you the story you'd you would understand that the congo was truly a colonizer's playground you could do whatever you want, however much you wanted it. And it started out that way because of King Leopold II. His legacy and what his legacy should forever be tied to the crimes that were committed in the Congo. And I hoped that I've been able to do that today. Thank you for listening to Utajua Hujui. And I hope that... This was entertaining. Bye, guys. See you next time.